this morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, and the background, of course, of Genesis chapter 3 is that the first man, Adam, was made in the image of God, Adam and Eve. He made them male and female, and Adam, this is the, from the Sistine Chapel by Michelangelo, his visual statement of the creation of Adam. Adam had unbroken fellowship with God. He lived in a pristine environment where there was no sin. He had dominion over creation. It was 75 degrees and no humidity. There was abundant fruit. There were lakes and waterfalls and rivers everywhere. There was no man-eating tigers or beasts. There was no bubonic plague. There was no tuberculosis, no cancer, no heart disease, no aging. And yet Adam had something lacking in his heart. We saw that last week, and that which was lacking was, the, was community. We were made to be with other people. God is Trinitarian. He has made us in his image. We are to be people in community. And the particular application of that community was the giving of Eve to Adam and Adam to Eve. The Bible says the Lord brought Eve to Adam. And then the scripture says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But then into this environment of spontaneous joy and utter freedom between husband and wife, into this environment of glorious self-disclosure, in this environment of no hiding and no transgression of any type, sin entered. It's called original sin. We have inherited a sin nature from the first human couple. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are conceived with a sin nature. But this is the background. This is how paradise was lost. So listen to Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now, previously in chapter 2, God has said to Adam, he says, you can eat of any tree, but of this tree, the tree of, uh, of knowledge, of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it. Because when the day you eat of it, you will die. So Satan says, did he really say that? The woman said to the serpent, you, we may not eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And I just want to look at this passage, talking about God's good design and how it was lost. 
and how that has ramifications for us in our daily living. The first point is this, that it says that the serpent, who represents Satan, the serpent was more crafty, more deceitful, more beguiling than any other creature. Verse 13 says that the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. Satan is a deceiver. He's a liar and the father of lies. He is like a roaring lion, 1 Peter says. He wants to drink us down. He presents himself as an angel of light. He is the accuser of the brothers and the sisters in Christ. He is destructive. He is evil. And when you look at this passage, you say, you know, when we walk back, step back from this today, we say that we are a people who are in the midst of warfare. There is good and there is evil. There is darkness and there is light. There is the way of peace and life and there is a way of destruction. There is the broad way that leads to death and there is a narrow way that leads to life. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, we are at warfare. There's a statement in the worship guide from a man named Clinton Arnold who says this spiritual warfare is all-encompassing. It touches every area of our lives, our families, our relationships, our church, our neighborhoods, our communities, our places of employment. It is all-encompassing. And, and to not be aware of that is to be deceived. I, I just say, I am often very deceived. See this little diagram. This is a study I've gone through. It says that in the area of spiritual warfare, there are two extremes. Extreme number one is obsessive preoccupation with the forces of darkness. 1 John 5, 19 says, we know the whole world is under the enthrallment of the devil, the whole worldly system. And so you're just obsessively preoccupied with demons and darkness and the strategies of the devil. On the other extreme is complacent indifference. 1 John 4, 4, that says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so we discount the devil. We discount his overtures. And, and really, we should be somewhere in the middle because the Bible says to put on the full armor of God. In the scriptures, you see where demons are rebuked. We are at warfare. Martin Luther said this, the bondage of the will. He says, so, so when the devil throws your sins in your face, just stop. Luther is famously known for throwing an inkwell at Satan. He was suffering from discouragement, depression, and in anger, he threw an inkwell against the wall. He says, be gone, Satan. I'm not suggesting you do that. But I'm suggesting we, we battle not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the, the, the wickedness in heavenly places, against the spiritual forces of darkness all, all around us. So Luther says, you, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, you tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What, what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. He says, you've run to the cross. 
You glory in the greatness of Christ. But you are aware that the serpent is crafty, is a deceiver, is the accuser. That's how paradise was lost, and that's how the devil trips us today. The passage in 1 John. 1 John 5, 18, 19, and 20 says this. 18 says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. In other words, if you're truly in Christ, sin does not define you. You repent, you run to the cross. And, and, and the evil one, because of Jesus, cannot ultimately rule your life, if you're in Jesus. Verse 19, we know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true and His name is Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We know. We know that we're kept. We know that we're protected. And we also know that we are at warfare. There's a tension there. Westminster Confession of Faith, larger catechism, says, what do we mean when we pray, deliver us from evil? The answer is in part that God would so overrule the world and all in it and subdue the flesh and restrain Satan and bless all means of grace and empower us to be watchful in the use of them. That God would overrule the world, the flesh, and the devil. So, we're at warfare. Number two, Satan's attack in the garden, and I think now, is two-pronged. So, place two placements. The first is this. He questions the goodness and the truthfulness of God. See, Eve, has God, did God really say this? Did God really say this? Really? Did, why, why would God say this? You have every fruit tree in the world to eat from except for one. You have every lake. This, you have no environmental issues. You have... Then Eve misquoted God who had been quoted to her by Adam. We can't touch it. He didn't say you can't touch it. He can't eat of it. And so, so today, you know, the, the forces of darkness come and they make us question the goodness of God. I covered with the staff this week a situation that just literally takes my breath away. I won't go into great detail. It's about a pastor from Indiana who started a 12-year sentence because as a, a man in his mid-50s, he had an intimate relationship with a 16-year-old girl in this church. And he had a staff member drive her across state lines to meet him at a park for a weekend of of, uh, intense counseling. Without going to the, it's just just sickening. And and you you, you recoil and you you say something like this, man, I could never do that. And then you stop. And you think of other areas in your life where at times a desire 
has become a fantasy, has become an incremental step here, there, here, there, here, there. And you find yourself in an addiction or in an enthrallment because you've listened to the father of lies who questions the goodness of the great God who made us, whose name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it happens. One thing that keeps me on my knees as an older guy now, I can draw up a list of at least 25 names of men more godly than I will ever be who fell into gross sin. And so I'm very careful to never say, ah, man, no. Maybe not that particular sin or that particular sin, but boy, Satan knows my zip code. And he's a liar. And he wants to spoil the paradise that Christ has brought to my heart. See, one one thing that's helpful to me is, is this little diagram. When I think about spiritual warfare, Like Westminster says, we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. Years ago, when many of us were much younger, there was a comedian who had a line that became very famous. He said, time after time, the devil, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. And there's some truth to that. But also, my indwelling sin that is not under the lordship of Christ leads me astray. And also the world system around me leads me astray. So, so, so where the devil begins and my sinful capacities and the worldly system leaves also begin, I don't know, they're, they're intertwined. I, I, you just can't say it's this or it's that. I think it's all three. The unarrested passions in my heart that are not under the lordship of Jesus from day to day, the, the, the worldly system that, that says this is okay when it's not okay, and the devil, just it, it is an ongoing issue. And, and so, you know, when it, comes to, when it comes to the flesh, yourself, the issue is to know yourself. Just an example, a silly example. I, me personally, I can withstand any sweet save for homemade cookies and cobbler. If you put a cake out on our counter, I, I would just... I'm not a big cake fan necessarily. Put a plate of oatmeal raisin cookies out, homemade, not the store-bought stuff, just store-bought. Store-bought's horrible. Homemade, hot. Maybe some chocolate drops in them, you know? I can eat eight in 10 minutes, big ones. And then I walk away with great self-control and come back and eat six more in 30 minutes. Or my wife will make a cobbler and put it on, just put it on the top of the stove. And so I'll come by and I'll get a spoon out. And I'll get a bite, eat it. Oh, man. Put it in the dishwasher. See, I'm civilized. I don't double dip. <laughs> and 10 minutes later, I just am compelled to go back to the kitchen. The siren voice of apple cobbler. Another spoon. Pretty soon, there are 20 spoons in the dishwasher. You know know yourself. Know yourself. Know the devil. See? The accuser, the belittler. He just browbeats you until you say, you know, what's the use? I'm not worthy. Then you run to the cross like Luther did. And, And then the worldly system. You see, 
At different times in the history of our culture, the worldly system has supported or defeated biblical values. Can you ever imagine that we were part of an a, a ethos that supported slavery? Something as horrid as slavery. And you fast forward today and see that there are certain areas where, where, where the biblical ethos, the biblical system is mocked, it is belittled, it is lampooned. At other places, the biblical system is, is, is upheld, like the pursuit of justice, especially among young people, is very applaudable. I still think, by and large, because of economics, integrity in the marketplace is applauded. I've asked several businessmen this week, what's integrity in the marketplace like? And they said, really, in our sphere, it's very high. But this week, we had a situation where a young man has been in the news and who, who, who came out and said, this is the way I am. I'm going to live in my sexuality. And we've asked, acted as if he won the Congressional Medal of Honor and defended 16 preschool children from five uh, jihadists. He's become the toast of our culture. I'm going, good grief. And then well-known, one well-known NBA star tweeted him, well-known, outstanding basketball player, I mean, incredible basketball player. But it's just because you're a good basketball player or an actress to make you a cultural savant. It's interesting. We, we give people platforms, and they're, they're, they're really not very smart. So, but this guy said this. Don't suffocate who you are because of the ignorance of others. Close quote. Don't suffocate. And I read that, and I just pondered it. And I said, really, the Bible says suffocate sin. No. The Bible says in Romans 6, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't you let sin reign in your mortal bodies. In other words, suffocate it. We all have sinful inclinations. You, you suffocate it by the power of the Spirit. You worship Jesus, and you put it to death. In fact, later in the chapter, verse 18 says this, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And he says here, either you're a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. He said, you're set free from sin, you become, you, I want to be a slave of righteousness because God is good. I, I want to go to Matthew 11 where Jesus says, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm humble and gentle of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. I want that in my life. I, 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 want, I want to suffocate these things. I, I do. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. God says this. You shall have no other gods before me. Number one. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Jealous God? Jealous? The Apostle Paul 
echoes that. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Please bear with me for I feel a divine jealousy over you people at Corinth. Since I betrothed you to one husband as a pure virgin to Christ, I am afraid the serpent who deceived Eve by his cunning will lead you astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. See, God is jealous for us with a godly jealousy because when God is jealous for God's own glory, it is for our good. I, I want to be a slave of righteousness. This is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I just say, church, we, we need to look at each other and say, yeah, be aware of the schemes of the devil. You're, you're not going to get much help from the worldly system in the area of biblical sexual ethics. I mean, I was, I was watching a very good detective show the other day. It's very good. It's clean. It's fun. Just, it's just good. And they were trying to solve a murder that took place on the morning of a wedding. They're interviewing the bride and the groom. And the two policemen say to them, you guys weren't sleeping together last night? I said, no, as strange as it was, we were, I was out with the guys and I thought, oh, stop. stop, stop, No, they weren't sleeping together. They were married. We believe you sleep together after you get married, not in the ramp-up phase. But it was just asked like it was, well, good grief, are you weird? I mean, there's going to be a, 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 a cynical things. So you guys didn't live together before marriage. You must be part of that weird group called Evangelical Biblical Orthodox Christianity. Wow. We thought you were a dinosaur in the Smithsonian. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The second thing that the devil does here is, is that he, he beautifies sin. He says to Eve, you know, you, uh, you, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, the Bible says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. The reason we're decaying is because of sin. You shall surely not die. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened to good and evil. That's true. See, it's a partial truth. It's a lie. It's a partial truth. Your, your eyes will be opened. So God, God is holding you back. You need to reach your human growth potential. God's holding you back. Eat. Eat. And so he beautifies sin. He doesn't say the end result will be so forth and so on. He beautifies sin. So Eve ate I wish the Bible didn't say this. I think the Bible intimates that she turns and she gives it to Adam. Adam wasn't leading. Adam was passive. I wish the Bible said Eve ate and went charging down to the lower 40 acres where Adam was tending the sheep and worshiping God. And as she ran, she atrophied and she got older and she said, look. And Adam said, oh, get away from me. He didn't do that. He ate. 
And as soon as they ate, you know what happened? Mosquitoes landed on their forehead. The humidity jumped up. No. The devil beautifies sin. Human nature to me can be very amusing and very tragic. When I go to the hospitals to visit people, I will pass alleyways, and in the alleyways, in scrubs, are people that work at the hospital smoking. <laughs> now, some of them have to be health care workers. And I just, I just say, you know, every survey tells us that, that we're holding, as far as smoking in America, we're, we're still under 30 at about 20%, 19 to 20%. And after all of these years of incredible communication, why? We make bad decisions. Why in America today with our obesity do we still have buffet restaurants? My dad and mom lived in a small town at the base of the hill where they lived. There was a Ponderosa Steakhouse kind of like Golden Corral on steroids. And my dad and mom would occasionally go in there and eat, and my dad would say, son, I went to the Golden Corral or the Ponderosa today. He said, you, I've heard him, he's 88 this month, wonderful man. He said, you would not believe the people that eat there. Son, it's a sight to behold. <laughs> and I think, I can go without beholding that sight. Why, why, why? why? Because it tastes good, even though we know it's not good for us. I mean, you just go on and on and on. Why do we lust? Why do we give in to it? We know it's a dreadful thing. Why, why, why do we gossip? Somebody says, I shouldn't tell you this, but. And that's, that's when I put my foot in the trap saying, I got to hear it now. Somebody ever says, I shouldn't tell you this, but. I'm saying, you better tell me now. You better tell me now. It's like Teddy Roosevelt's daughter, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, as she's an older woman. She said, if you have nothing good to say to anybody, come over here and sit next to me. <laughs> no. The beautification of sin. It's, it's just there. That, that's the devil's ploy. And then, and then this. Then we blame shift. We, we blame shift. Listen to verse 7. The, the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? And the man said, the woman. <laughs> the woman who you gave me. You're culpable, God. You gave her to me. Now look what she's done. Mosquitoes, gnats, humidity. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and 
I regrettably ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. This little poem was written about 30 years ago. I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed to find out why I killed the cat and blackened my husband's eyes. He laid me on a downy couch to see what he could find. And here is what he dredged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy hid my dolly in a trunk. And so it follows naturally that I'm always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that is why I suffer from kleptomania. Mania. At three, I had the feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it follows naturally that I've poisoned all my lovers. I am happy now. I've learned the lesson this is taught. Everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. That's what happens here. It's called blame shifting. I'm not the problem. The woman is. The woman that you gave me, Lord. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kind of a helpless person. I was deceived by, by the devil who's so much smarter than me. And not only do they blame shift, but they, they sew together fig leaves to cover their shame and horror. It's, it's a man-made attempt to deal with an eternal problem. And this, this, is, just, this is just the absolute beauty of the text. God, God looks at them and he, and he says, um, this is the result of your sin. He talks about thorns and thistles. He talks about pain and childbirth. And yet in, in, the midst, in the midst of this horrendous picture of the fall, he gives the first gospel promise when he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, your minions, and her offspring. He will bruise, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Some translations say he will crush your head. And we believe that's the first gospel promise regarding a Messiah King who would come. And then to underscore this blessed promise, there's a statement here in, in chapter 2, verse 21, that says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. There was a shedding of blood. There was a, if you will, a sacrifice for their sin. When the Lord God said, fig leaves won't do. Fig leaves of self-affirmation, fig leaves of self-denunciation, fig leaves of, of pilgrimages of, 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 of repentance. Man-made systems won't do. The only system that will cover your shame and your guilt and your sorrow are the garments that come from the shed blood of an animal. And then he gave the same promise to Abraham. And he instituted the Mosaic Covenant with the Day of Atonement and the Lamb of God who would take away the sin sacrificed and the scapegoat being forced into the wilderness, saying your sins are forever eclipsed and gone. 
And, and, and the Old Testament godly Jews would look at the sacrificial system and say, a great Messiah is coming one day who will, who will forever make void this sacrificial system because he will be Messiah King. And John the Baptist sees the Lord Jesus Christ and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the apostle Peter says, we're saved by the blood of the Lamb who was known before the foundation of the earth. You see, it's all here in the garden. Fig leaves won't do. In, in your shame, in your sadness, in your sin, fig leaves don't do. Only the shed blood of an animal will do. The Lamb of God fulfilled in Christ. See, that is the glory of the gospel. So in Romans 16, the Apostle Paul talks about the mystery that has for ages been hidden. Listen to this. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been known to the nations. The mystery now made known. And then in Colossians, he says this, verse 20, he says, through him you've been reconciled, he's reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There's reconciliation. See, what so, so paradise can be substantially, not, not totally, because it's never perfect on this, in this world. It can be substantially reclaimed as we glory in the one who shed his blood on the cross for our sins. Fig leaves won't do. It's only the work of Christ. And that's why the most important thing that I need to do is to grapple with the reality of who Jesus is by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God and to be a man who worships and to be a man who seeks first the kingdom of God. That's the most important thing I do. And as I do that, as I discard the fig leaves of my culture and embrace the garment of his justifying grace by the cross, that he changes me. And the most important thing I can do to have paradise restored substantially in my life is to follow Jesus. Fig leaves won't do. It's only the work of Christ. I need that every day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. And I, I pray that, that we would understand how, how your good design was, was forfeited, but how it has now been substantially and partially reclaimed in Christ. We thank you that we've been reconciled to you by the cross of Jesus. We thank you. We thank you that you in tender mercy in the garden said fig leaves won't do. And you made a, a, a covering for Adam and Eve as a proto-evangelistic statement of the glory of the cross. Thank you. Oh God, I just pray that we have a glory in, in who, who you are, Lord Christ, the fulfillment of the ages. I just pray that. I just I plead that. 
And I pray that would go throughout the fabric of our lives and our homes and that, that the joy and glory of paradise would be substantially birthed afresh in our homes, in our worship, in our hearts, in our relationships, God, as Christ is central, as we glory in the Lamb of God. Do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.